Welcome to This Week in Ringer Sports. I'm Liz Kelly, here to bring you a compilation of the best offerings from the sports side of things here at the Ringer Podcast Network. First up, on One Shining Podcast, Tate and Mark chat about Louisville heading into the new season and Patino's comments about his firing. The, uh, the Louisville Cardinals. My favorite team in basketball this season. I cannot wait to watch what happens. My first thing, Dave Padgett, the interim head coach, for people that don't know, he took over for Patino. Uh, all the headlines I've seen, the team is much more relaxed with Dave Padgett. Now, folks, That's, there's no way. I so they so let me get this straight. <laughs> can we hear? Can That's we play? Can we play a quick? Uh, so basically, Rick Pitino is obviously out at this point. Uh, he has some thoughts about the situation at Louisville. Yes, yes, we need to play. Let, this. Let's hear his thoughts on this, and we're going to chime in afterwards. When you say the University of Louisville, the people there love of my life, the other coaches. I worship the ground that my players walk on. That's how much I love them. But to me, this board of trustees locking me out of my office, telling me I'm dismissed before facts came out, let it develop. They're not the University of Louisville. They're a board hired by the governor to deal with the, the president's situation a while ago. They're not the University of Louisville that I know. Oh my God. <laughs> I worship the floor that my players walk on. Okay, Jay. Why does it who who is handling their firing worse? Rick Patino <laughs> from Louisville or Bob Knight from Indiana? Because oh. just shut just shut up, Rick. Just just stop talking. This just, is not the Louisville that I know, Mark Titus. Just stop talking. Like everybody knows that you <laughs> Everybody knows favorite. that you know. We have evidence that you know. We all know that. Just like, just be like, you I got me. I honestly think that the Sorry. FBI has like text messages between Rick Pitino and the kid and and Gatto, the Adidas guy. I think they have actual paper trail on this whole situation. And he's still going down. And he's not. He's not. And he's just like he's I, not. Co- he's not ca- caping anything. And he's trying to. I, I don't understand it. Why he's giving interviews and the the guy to is, Jay Billis. It, it's ridiculous. I love Jay Billis. Like that's maybe not the place to go out. Like Jay's Jay just sat there. He was so stunned that he was having this conversation with him. He was like, I can't believe Rick Pitino wants to talk to well, me. He's probably, he probably thought he was dying in front of him. I mean, you see him like crying and he's got the white face and the puffy eyes. I said it's like Voldemort. Like he's on his last Horcrux. It's like the end. The end is near. I'm so curious to see how Louisville fans feel about Rick because I'm sure right I now think they love him. I'm sure right now they still love him. But when you when you realize what's about to happen, what's coming? I, mean, I, I still love him. Nothing's he's, changed. He, he's, he provides he's, us with content. Let me, let we can tell talk you this. About Rick Pitino is who I thought he was. On the Bill Simmons podcast, Bill is joined by fellow ESPN alum Dan Patrick to chat about his NBA player comparison and some players with the best shooting form in NBA history. What 2017 player? represented your game at its peak in pickup. I've heard good stories about your game, by the way. Um, let's see. Who would be 2017? I know. I didn't like playing defense. Um, oh. I did it. I, I did it. Pre- well, you know what? My coach would always put me on the best score because, like, he, he wanted me to understand that you got to be at both ends, and I just didn't appreciate <laughs> that. But care. then he knew that my – yeah, well, my ego would get in the way, and then I'd want to play some defense there. And I realized then I could get tired at the offensive end, so you got to sacrifice something. And um, who would I be? Like Jay- I would probably be maybe uh, – what? I was going to say J.R. Smith. No, you went to the hole more than J.R. No, I was a better shooter than Jr. Um, 
let me see. Maybe maybe a Reddick. Maybe a Reddick. Oh, um, okay. Reddick. Yeah. yeah. I like it. Yeah. My, that, I had to pick a white guy, I guess. Isn't that the way it always happens? <laughs> <laughs> Ray Allen. How's that? I, I would love to. Ray Allen with the heat. How's that? Miami Heat Ray Allen. That's good. I can see that in my head. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sharp eye shooter coming off a lot of screens. You see it on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. I think Ray has the greatest shot in NBA history. The final shot. Form. Oh, well, I was going to say, I think he probably, yeah, he had top three greatest form ever, but also made the greatest shot of all time. I really do think that finals game yes, he- six was the only shot. First of all, it swung the title. Second of all, he might have been one of like four people on the planet who would have even thought to do it and had practiced that specific <laughs> shot and made it. Um, I don't know who else. I don't just don't know who else you would have grabbed from the history of the league to put in that specific instance who could have said, hey, I've practiced this shot for the last 20 years of my life. I'm going to go make it now. It's just crazy. It was the, the whole thing's crazy. Who else do you have uh, form-wise? Besides Ray Allen, you said he's one of the top three. Who are the other two in your opinion? I uh, I love Mike Miller's jump shot. I love Bradley Beal's jump shot. Um, mm-hmm. Mike, early Mike Miller, like the Memphis Grizzlies Mike Miller. I always thought he just had a gorgeous one. Uh, I love Bradley Beal. And... Even though it's not a traditional jump shot, I think Curry's release is – I'm always transfixed by it when he's really going. Like how – just the mechanics of it, how he's basically stripped everything out of it other than just these two steps of bringing the ball near his chin and just firing it with his wrist. And it's like it's like 0.08 seconds or whatever he gets it off. Nobody shoots like him, the, the release he has. It's unbelievable. It's still – how long we've been watching him for 10 years it still remains unbelievable to me watching him i love it yeah i would put dale ellis in there i always thought Mm. dale was one of the great deep shooters of all time so i'd I'd put him on my short list uh along with ray ray yeah he's that was a good one reggie's probably the one who became a little I, i know he's one of your staples on your show he's became a little overrated over time i think the fact that he went into msg and laid the smack down two straight years and had the eight points in 13 seconds Mm -hmm. kind of vaulting him up i don't i don't i would not put him like in like the top six or seven i think the stats back it up definitely he's on the list of mm. uh-oh we're up two, but that guy's wide open he's definitely making that he's on that list this week on the ringer mlb show ben Lindbergh and michael bauman talk about shohei otani the japanese pitcher and outfielder and the financial implications involved with otani's potential move to the big leagues i think we have to talk about otani obviously We are interested in what he will do. Interested is too weak a word to see what he'll do in the majors. And so selfishly, we want him to be in the majors as soon as possible. Financially speaking, that may not be in his best interest because of the new extremely strict and team-friendly and player-unfriendly rules and international spending limits that have been imposed by the new CBA. Otani is in line to make much, much, much less than he is worth. He would be getting hundreds of millions of dollars, most likely, if he were a free agent, as it is. He's looking at a maximum payout of $5 million, something in that range. So, and it won't be that because almost every team is has committed a large chunk of their international right. bonus pool to other players. Yeah, so, so like we're talking about probably a, six, a high six-figure signing bonus once everything mm-hmm. uh, settles down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now it 
becomes, well, is he so eager to get to the majors that he will pass up the possibility of making much more money a year down the line when he is 25 and those international spending rules no longer apply to him? And from everything we've heard, it sounds like he wants to come over and like his team, the Nippon Hemp Fighters, are willing to send him over. But there is a hang-up, as reported by Joel Sherman, Really, it's it's kind of a complicated issue in that the posting agreement between MLB and NPB has expired this year. And so in the past, it was teams in MLB could bid whatever they wanted for a Japanese player when he was posted by his team. And it would just be the highest bidder gets to negotiate with him and no one else does. Then the system changed to every team that is interested in the player can post $20 million or bid $20 million. And then they all get to negotiate with the player That agreement expired recently, but MLB is willing to kind of grandfather Otani in under that old agreement reportedly so that teams, anyone who wants him, which, you know, any team would be willing to pay $20 million for Shohei Otani. So every team would at least be interested in talking to him for that amount. But it sounds like from Sherman's report, the MLB Players Association is not happy with this and needs to give approval to this, which is something that is stipulated by the CBA when you have a contract with a player from another country. And the MLBPA is putting up something of a fight here, showing some resistance because, to quote Sherman, they are concerned about the precedent and fairness of the player receiving, say, $300,000 and his former team $20 million. And I'll just clear the floor for you right here because I think you have a well-justified rant here about how if the Players Association didn't like this system, they shouldn't have allowed themselves to be negotiated into it. Yeah, that's uh, – wow. You know, it, it's uh, shocking – that they are now a year after they negotiated the new CBA that explicitly, uh, you know, created this system for players like Otani, which within oh I don't know about twelve hours of the the broad details of the CBA leaking, everybody was like, right. "Wait, doesn't this completely screw Shohei Otani exactly. in particular?" Right. You know, this just I I just imagine. <sighs> I'm going to make a a comparison that I want everybody to know is like is not based on Tony Clark's appearance at all. But you know how in Return of the Jedi where Jabba the Hutt's sleeping and somebody wakes him up and he goes, (laughs) oh, and oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, that's how I imagine Tony Clark operating at the the helm of of the (laughs) Players Association, because like he is the last person to figure everything like this out. And he always figures it out like I don't know, somewhere between three weeks and in this case, uh, 11 months after it's too late to do anything about it. Like, yeah, that is concerning that uh, a Japanese, frankly, it's concerning that a Japanese team can only get $20 million for Shohei Otani, uh, but that they can get $20 million while Otani himself is only getting 300,000, you know. Yeah, like that's what you get for completely screwing every single baseball player on the planet who isn't a member of the MLBPA mm-hmm. right now yep. when you're negotiating, you know, like 
And Otani's going to be fine. Like he's not, we're not even talking about, uh, you know, the kids coming out of the Dominican Republic and Colombia who are, have no guarantee of future earning potential who don't have you know, five years of, of earning a professional salary behind mm-hmm. him. Like, you know, Otani's not going to be poor by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not going to get paid anywhere near what he's worth. He's not going to get paid 5% of what he's worth as a, a player. So like, it's great. It's great that they're concerned about this right now. It would have been more useful if they were concerned about this 12 months ago. The Packers haven't won a game since Aaron Rodgers' injury in week six. On the Ringer NFL show, Kevin Clark and Robert Mays discuss the value of Aaron Rodgers to the Packers over the past decade. If you're Mike McCarthy, what level of gift should you get Aaron Rodgers on a yearly basis? Now that we have a clearer picture of exactly what he is, to that football team. I think we all knew, but again, there's really no way to appreciate him until he's out of the picture. So if you're Mike McCarthy and you know that you've had a job for 12 years because of this man, what do you buy him? Is there anything you can do? So Mike McCarthy, Google tells me makes around $6 million a year. Let's say after this season, the Packers move on. I'm not saying they will, but I would just hypothetically the Packers move on. And the Packers say to the next coach, Aaron Rodgers is going to be your quarterback, but you're going to make like $70,000 a year. (laughs) (laughs) Or they just give that offer to Mike McCarthy. Does he take it? I don't think Mike McCarthy takes Mike McCarthy it. I think there are it. humans in the world that would take coaches. it, but Mike McCarthy would I not. I think there are good coaches who would take the $70,000 offer for Aaron Rodgers. It really is incredible. There's no way to know just how bad the Packers would have been over the last decade if they hadn't found Rodgers. I think they would probably have been fine, but geez, they just don't look any good. What evidence do you have that they'd be fine? I guess it's just the Packers are always fine, but again, that's because of Aaron Rodgers. No, that's because they've had a quarterback every year of our lot. Do you remember? This is a serious question because I don't. Do you remember the Packers before Brett Favre? No. No. We were too young for that. I would have been four years old, yeah. which speaks to my constant hell. <laughs> of course, I don't remember the Packers before Brett Favre. The Magic All Man. I remember is them being good. Don Medjkowski. I, I, yeah, I, I do not remember, remember those days. One of the first, I mean, a Brett Favre playoff game was one of the first games I remember watching. So that's that's sort of where I'm at on that. So I don't remember the Packers, with the exception of like the Ray Rhodes year and then the year that the bottom fell out. Um, and they get able to get AJ Hawk. Like, there aren't really there aren't really times where I've been like, oh, the Packers suck. That hasn't yeah, happened no, in my life. It doesn't life. happen very often. Yeah, one of my first games was Bears-Packers Halloween. I think that was 1994. Yeah, and in Chicago, yeah, week nine. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. So that was one of my first games. So, yeah, I mean, my earliest football memories involved the Packers, and they involved Brett Favre. That's Unfortunately, they really, also involved the Bears. Yeah, you got a, far too many Bears memories, buddy. On the Ringer NBA show, Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon assess the value of the Eric Bledsoe trade to the Bucks. Eric Bledsoe, once he was banished from the Phoenix Suns um, after Goodbye. his after his tweet saying he wanted to get out of there, uh, I don't want to be here anymore. Well, now uh, you know. Listen, in, in NBA terms, it is great. Uh, to move from Phoenix to Milwaukee. I will not imagine that non-job related, a lot of people have made that choice. <laughs> um, but 
for his purposes and getting to play playoff basketball for the first time since he played for the Clippers. You've got to imagine Bledsoe will be pretty happy about that. On the other side, Phoenix is able to obtain Greg Monroe and a first-round pick. Heavily protected first-rounder. I still think good value because you can get something from Monroe if you want to flip him. I mean, I thought I thought this guy's stock was killed like, you know, their leverage of being able to get something for him. So I was kind of impressed that Phoenix got something, you know, that's a real like possible starter, certainly eight man rotation guy and a pick for him. So I thought I thought they did. I thought Phoenix did pretty good. And, you know, it's cool that Milwaukee was the place that he landed, because sometimes, you know, in the NBA, when you hear a trade rumor, you think about, oh, here's a team that makes sense for a guy. Here's another team. And one of the first teams that came to mind was Milwaukee for Eric Bledsoe, because they were a team that needed really another guy, another playmaker. And look, I'm not. I'm not the biggest Bledsoe fan because his off-ball shooting is quite average, and so if you're taking the ball, if you're keeping the ball in Giannis's hands, Bledsoe doesn't really help you space the floor. But the fact is, is that like they needed another playmaker, and Bledsoe is really, really good in the pick and roll, and he's another guy who can attack off the dribble. So it's a it's a risk worth taking for Milwaukee, especially with the protections on that pick. Where Bledsoe's a good player, man. Like he's the twelfth or the thirteenth best point guard in basketball. Um, he's got injury problems and there's concerns with that, but he's good. And so I, I'm excited about this trade for both teams. Like you said, Chris, Phoenix had no leverage, and to get a first rounder out of it, it's pretty damn good. My first instinct is I'm thinking, my God, they're going to be able to throw Bledsoe and Brogdon out as a backcourt, two guys that can, you know, you, you feel comfortable with them on ones, you feel comfortable with them on twos. You know, if they get switched, yeah. you know, they're not yeah. easy guys to post up on. These guys are both got these condor like wingspans. Um, they've shown a, a willingness to be able to defend. Certainly Brogdon. I mean, it's demanded by kid. We just haven't seen it in so long from Bledsoe. Once upon a time, I thought he was as difficult a perimeter defender to go against in the league. And then I don't think he's lost the ability to defend. I think he's lost the will. And so if he gets that back, I get the offensive side and the playmaking. I'm more interested in the defensive side because I think they could throw out lineups where, you know, I don't even know how great they have to be offensively because they might be able to just strangle you out and you not be able to score for four and five minute stretches. I think they could be devastating with all that length and speed that everything they've got uh, defensively. That's a great point, Chris, because there's going to be so much focus on the offensive end of the floor, as there should be, right? Um, but at the same time, there's also another end, and that's where that's where Bledsoe in the past was elite. When he was a younger player with the Clippers, he was probably one of the better perimeter guard defenders in the league. And it wasn't it wasn't just he could defend point guards either because he's so strong and because he's really so long, he's able to defend some bigger guys too. So I think it makes a versatile Bucks team even more versatile having someone like Eric Bledsoe at the point guard position now. The thing is, is like, as you said, he lost the will to defend in Phoenix. So will he turn it back to the level that he did? He could, and let's hope that he does, um, but there's no guarantees of that. It could be something where he can't flip the switch right away, but you know, I, I'm essentially just playing devil's advocate to myself because I'm with you where he's going to be able to turn it on. Defense is about effort, and I think he's going to really you know, uh, feel a lot of new energy playing on this new Bucks team. ESPN premiered their new 30 for 30 documentary, Nature Boy, early this week on Ric Flair. On The Masked Man Show, David Shoemaker and guest Steve Kazee share their thoughts on the doc and its best moments.
there's no way to watch Nature Boy and not in every little segment say like, I wish I could have seen more of that. Yeah, that's the I, 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 the thing that I I took my couple of takeaways was number one, it really made me miss kayfabe. It really made me miss those days of like believing to a certain extent that these people are these people. Because sure. last night was really about seeing the flawed man mm-hmm. behind the nature boy more so than I think it was celebrating like, you know, the wildness of Ric Flair. Yeah. Um, it, so that was my first thing is it just sort of made me long for those days because I do think that when Ric Flair goes, he's sort of the last of a breed. I don't know who would be the next closest guy who lived his gimmick, lived his gimmick, like mm-hmm. in a way that like people just don't do anymore. Yeah. You know, Finn Balor doesn't live his gimmick. His gimmick stays in the ring with him, you know, and and it, so it made me sort of long for those days in in a nostalgic sense. But the the second thing that I sort of took away from it was that, you know, it it, it it's a it is such a dark industry, and as fans, yeah. we sort of we it's like people who still like watch football. You can't watch football these days without thinking about CTE, sure. right? So I can't watch wrestling without thinking about these guys that suffered and everybody who's died early and, you know, the toll it takes on bodies and mm-hmm. things. So to me, it was like a stark reminder of like just how much these guys give for our entertainment and yeah. how sometimes we're, uh, we, neg- we're not very appreciative of that. We don't sort of see that side of it. You know, when we badmouth people or trash talk, you know, <clears> decisions and, Things like that. So those were my two biggest takeaways from it. I, I thought it was a flawed documentary much in the way that he's a flawed man. But how do you encompass that guy's life in 90 minutes? Like you said, like, yeah, he's he's so he's such a legend. He's almost like a Sasquatch. You know, it's like it's true. Is it a real thing or is it not? And I don't think, even think he knows. You know, he tried to fight me in a bar once. We've had that conversation. Do we have, have we had it on the podcast? I don't know if we did or not, but I, I, I don't want to go into it. <laughs> Living the gimmick. Well, I mean, and that's part part of what I wrote about in my piece was that I felt like the documentary actually spent a little bit too much time. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it was interested in the concept of wrestling in a lot of ways and tried to use Rick as the vessel. And so there was, they spent a lot of time on this Ric Flair versus Richard Fleer thing, which I don't really think is that significant a distinction. No, I mean, Rick was, Rick said in the, in the documentary that, you know, Richard Fleer was a guy that finished a year of college and then Ric Flair took over whatever. But it's like, that's not, this like evidence of some like split personality that's evidence that he like grew up and be- and just fully became the character. Yeah. I mean, you said you talked about him being him living the gimmick and him being flawed. I mean, he did live the gimmick. I mean, I don't think anybody would have watched a Ric Flair promo in the Crockett studio in the eighties and just be like, I bet he's a great dad. You yeah. know I mean? It, was, it no wasn't, it, I mean, it was it, like, I don't you think anybody ass- knew he was a dad. Right. Right. I mean, but even time. if you did, you'd be like, Oh, I'm sure he barely ever sees kids or, yeah. uh, you know, and if, and you would assume he was out drinking every night cause he talked about it. Yeah. You know I mean? This was the, the, the gimmick and the guy were just basically the same thing for almost his entire life. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's two, two quotes that I really loved from the documentary was the one, I guess it was an ESPN writer. Marty Smith. I didn't feel Hulk Hogan, man. I felt Ric Flair. I felt an authenticity in Ric Flair that he was really living what he was saying. Couldn't have agreed more with that statement. Like, I never felt Hulk Hogan, but Mm -hmm. I felt Ric Flair, and I still today feel Ric Flair when he's in the ring. There's just something about the magic of him being inside of a ring, even at 70 years old. And then the other one is at the end when they ask him, what does he want to be remembered for? You know, it's easy to say you want to be thought of as the best father that ever lived, but I wasn't. And I certainly wasn't the best husband. So I guess I'll just have to settle for wanting to be thought of as 
the greatest wrestler and the most entertaining wrestler that ever lived. And I thought it was the most honest moment of the thing because he's like, look, I, I was not a great dad. I wish I could say I was. And I was a terrible husband. Mm -hmm. So I guess I just want to be known as the greatest wrestler of all time. Yeah. And that sums it all up. That sums it up why he's still doing, still kicking, still fighting. You know, he's not going to get pinned uh, until I think he wants to. He's proven that time and time again. The U.S. men's national soccer team will play a friendly against Portugal on November 14th, featuring several new players. On Ringer FC, Chris, Micah, and Ryan discuss the move towards youth in U.S. men's soccer and what players to watch during the match. We're going to get into the Premier League overreactions, but I just want to I want to shoot you guys a couple of names by way of news here. Ooh. I just want to get your just, <laughs> just raw reactions. Yeah, raw nice. reactions. Weston McKenney, Tyler Adams, Josh Sargent, Cameron Carter-Vickers, Jesse Gonzalez. Who are these people? 2022 20, World 20, Cup champions. 20, they are playing. <laughs> they are young dudes who the USMNT has called up to face Portugal in their friendly. This uh, is like exactly what we wanted them to I do. I am firmly in right? favor of I have of not been Josh more excited Sargent for a USMNT friendly team. in a very long time. And Pulisic okay. isn't even playing. Yeah, because he's had a hard year. <laughs> he's had a hard year, they said. Uh, interim coach Dave Sasserin. Sarakin. Sarakin. Yeah. Sorry. I've really built Simmons that. Uh, he is, he is uh, getting experimental. And he is bringing in the kids. And God bless him, man. I mean, like, why not? Yeah. I mean, uh, nothing to lose. These, these kids are like, I mean, it's going to be really exciting to see a group of new USMNT players. Yeah, I mean, it's the next time the, world, the, the U.S. plays a game that actually matters, so a World Cup game. Well, I guess World Cup qualifying, because yeah. that is now an issue, is in five years. So the <laughs> players on this team should only be guys that have a chance of being yes. a starter, essentially, in five years. And Josh Sargent played for the U-17s, the U-20s, and now we're making, hopefully, his senior How old debut. Is he? Uh, under 17. He turns 18 in either January or February, and then he can officially start playing for Werder Bremen because he's currently still underage, so he's right. not allowed to play for them yet. Okay. Is there anybody else besides Sargent that we should be keeping an eye out for, the, uh, for this? Bill Hamid? Of course, always Hamid. <laughs> Weston McKinney, too. I mean, he's, he's started for Schalke a bunch this season. And Has he's, he? Yeah, he's at number six, which is sort of the position the U.S. never had, a yeah. holy midfielder. Um, and the Beckerman. Exactly. Beckerman, but good. cut his hair good. recently, actually. I, I still haven't seen pictures. Is he trying to like pretend like he's 17 now? I yes. have, like, I'm I have, a young yeah, player. He's trying to <laughs> How do you do, fellow holding midfielders? <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, we'll be really excited to see. I, I actually am excited to see this UMNT Portugal game. We'll be talking Definitely. about that next week, probably. On Ringer University, Ben and Roger chat about arguably the best college football sideline prop ever, the Miami turnover chain, and start their picks for Week 11 by discussing the marquee matchup between number 7-ranked Miami and number 3-ranked Notre Dame. There's something that I think I and all of college football came to love over the first nine weeks of the season. And I am here to say that I believe it's jumped the shark. And that thing is the University of Miami turnover chain. No! Why? Why? I love it. I love the turnover chain. I love it when players get it. But this week, uh, I, I came to learn that the University of Miami is selling replica turnover chains to fans for a hundred dollars there's a a 
a huge industry now in Miami of selling people turnover chains or shirts, Adidas branded shirts with a turnover chain. And this is where you cross the line with me because first of all, you can't wear the turnover chain unless you've created a turnover. You didn't earn that. You did not earn. You you can't buy a turnover chain. You have to go onto the field and take the goddamn ball from Virginia Tech to get that turnover chain. Second of all, you know, the players need the money. Give the players the money and you can sell the turnover chains all you want. Yeah. But I I it was such a cool organic thing. The players loved it, the coaches loved it. I love it. And now it's 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 gone out into the world of of enormous commercial sports, and I'm I'm hurt. It's hard for me to argue with that. The one thing I will say though is the chain is awesome. <laughs> it's still pretty endearing, and Jennifer Lopez was wearing it uh, at the Virginia Tech game. So shouts to shouts to huge Miami Hurricanes fan J Lo. What turnover did Jennifer Lopez create? Uh, she turned over from, what was it, Mark Anthony to Alex Rodriguez? <laughs> yeah. I, I'll give her the chain for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually can't. If one person who hasn't <laughs> intercepted a pass is allowed to wear the turnover chain, it's J-Lo. It's J-Lo. Uh, we, we, we're both in agreement there. Uh, we are going to get into our Week 11 picks now, and since we've just been talking about Miami, we might as well start there. They have a big one this weekend. They just proved themselves for real more than they have at any point in the season. And now they host Notre Dame, the Fighting Irish. The spread as of Tuesday is Notre Dame by only three and a half points. Roger, can Miami, despite the despite the fact that the turnover chain has jumped the shark, can Miami keep this thing rolling against the Irish? You know, that win over Virginia Tech, it reminded me actually a lot of a Jennifer Lopez song. Please go on. I'm real. Because they're real. Yeah. They're for real now. But I, <laughs> I, as Zach, we said. Zach Mack will, uh, will drop in the. Uh, this. I'm real. Yeah. And I can't go on without the you. Wow, that's really good. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I don't think they're as good as a Notre Dame. I would pick Notre Dame in this game. <laughs> I think they're not quite as real as J-Lo or Ja Rule. No one is as real as Jaw. <laughs> no one, no one is up there with Jaw. No one is up there with Jaw. But ja. um, that's uh, yeah. I, I have Notre Dame. Sorry, I got off. Guy, when I that's one of my favorite songs of all time. Yeah. Well, you used it. You used it properly. I applaud you for it. I uh, I'm going with Notre Dame too. I think Miami. The turnover chain is working. They have 20 turnovers. That's not the best in the country, but I think it's like 10th best or tied for 10th best. Uh, but yeah, the Irish are. Not winning close, they're winning big, and their combination of Brandon Wimbush and Josh Adams has been absolutely incredible. Adams is averaging 8.69 yards per carry, which is a huge number. And we talked a little bit about sort of how a lot of these other running backs who are in the Heisman Trophy conversation have fallen off, right? Saquon has had a couple bad weeks in a row. Bryce Love was held to 69 yards in that loss to Washington State. He had a big touchdown, but... Josh Adams is just killing people. He has almost 1,200 rushing yards, nine rushing touchdowns, and yeah, he's gaining, I think he's sixth in the nation in yards per carry. So I think he has a big game. I think Notre Dame wins this pretty comfortably. I, As much as I have sort of talked myself into Miami having a real college football playoff chance, I think Notre Dame is is a better team. I think Notre Dame is a top four or five talent. I think Miami is a top 15 talent. I think you'll see that on the I'm rooting for the U. I don't think they're going to do it. 
On NBA group chat, Chris Ryan, Justin Barrier, Haley O'Shaughnessy, and Paolo Ugetti play a round of Take Tank and pitch their takes on Chris Stapp's Porzingis, Kyle Lowry, and an interesting LeVar Ball conspiracy. So let's start with you, Justin. What's your take about the NBA that you want to offer up to the Sharks? Hello, Sharks. <laughs> uh, so in Connecticut, we value excellence, wow. oh my God. especially on the basketball court. <laughs> We're all about rings, success. Uh, and so <laughs> what I was, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to focus on the MVP. What's race. your evaluation? <laughs> What's your evaluation? I would like to uh, focus on the MVP race. Yeah. Okay. I think that it's going to be one of the more interesting ones to date. I think if you look at it, it's wide open. Uh, LeBron James, obviously a candidate. Giannis Antetokounmpo, obviously another candidate. Let me tell you about this guy I know. If you say Jeremy Lamb, I'm <laughs> going to have you separated <laughs> from the company. No, no, I'm not going to go that far this time. Maybe next week. But he's organic. Uh-huh. He's, he's locally sourced in Latvia. His name is Christos Porzingis. Top three MVP candidate. He's going to finish third on the ballot. I'll buy it, man. Yeah, I'll I mean, buy it. You can take my money. Yep. Also, we are feeling the power of New York right now. Yeah. Yeah. When, they, when they talk about like New York's biggest media market, like... Watch, yeah. This dude, this dude is blowing up. I'm buying into yeah. it. Yeah, I buy it. You got, you got, can I problems with that? No, I'm in. Take uh, my he money. He wore a shooting sleeve sometime there this week, and I ordered one on Amazon. Really? Wow. Yeah. Really? I'm just gonna Bulk? wear it as a headband around the office. <laughs> <laughs> That's a look. Really? How much are those Before firing up blogs? No, I didn't really buy one. <laughs> oh. okay. We could get you one of those with your steak dinner after the next day, in case you missed it. <laughs> okay. Um, what's your take that you want to sell? Okay, so this is not like something you'd go into a take. Take okay, tank. it's it's like a thing that I can't say that. Take tank. Take tank. Yeah. Take tank. This is not something you're gonna be like, oh, I wanna do this and like sell this chocolate everywhere. I'm really big on Hey, here's tank. A, just a quick thing I want to say. Don't ever go on Shark Tank. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so I feel like the person they were like, no. Yeah, like no. reevaluate. Have you guys everything. seen the sleeve? <laughs> Great. You can wear it around your head. Anyway, I think that Kyle Lowry is super disinterested this season. Mm. super disinterested and I mean his offense has seriously not clicked at all this season he hasn't had one game above 20 points averaging like 11 and we I was looking up quotes because the other day Kevin O'Connor brought up on Slack that he seemed upset that the Spurs weren't interested in him this summer has settled on him yes so he told a reporter (laughs) when the person asked him why his offense wasn't clicking he said I don't know man I think the way we're moving the ball the ball's not in my hands as much. They just want to try to get everyone involved. And for me, I'm used to having the ball in my hands. What a weirdo. I yeah. know. So I think that he's a little bit like disgruntled and upset. And the and Spurs thing. Yeah. Spurs I mean, why bring that up? Yeah, weird. That is you weird. should not bring that up Somebody anymore. basically asked him like a tossed off Spurs, like, oh, you know, weren't you rumored to be linked with the Spurs this year and in, in this past summer? And he was like, yeah, I wanted to go there, but they didn't <laughs> want me. Like, not really. And so now I'm back here. That's some pent up frustration. Buy it or sell it. You know, I've spent a lot of time around the New Orleans Pelicans. Uh, so I've invested heavily in sadness and just misery. <laughs> uh, and so I have to say. I'm I'm willing to buy in, okay. but I need I need 50 percent of your company. I want to make it. I made 10 cents on every dollar that you make off of Kyle Lowry's next contract. I might agree to that. Okay. We'll see. I got to talk to my you partner. Have a deal. <laughs> I don't know if I'm buying only because I think he's kind of having like a regular season LeBron syndrome without actually earning the ability yeah, right. to do so. Right. Where he's like, okay, I'll get around to getting good once the playoffs come around. Except but he's it, not good in the playoffs. And also, if he was yeah. LeBron, yeah. he 
would be so just much being more engaged, passive aggressive just being, about it. Yeah, well, that too. But I just more engaged. Maybe not necessarily good, but just more engaged. I sure, think, sure. You know. Look how the only thing interesting about the Raptors is just a guy saying Kyle Lowry's want to play there. <laughs> midlife Gosh. crisis. All right. Poor DeMar. Paolo, what's your take take? Oh, gosh. Okay, so mine's a little mm, outside the box. Okay. It's not... I you guys, think, you got to walk in, you make right. eye contact with me, right, and you right, say, I have the deal of a lifetime so, for you, and you'll never I forgive yourself. I think the Leangelo Ball situation in China wow. is merely a distraction to distract away from Lonzo Ball's poor play on the Lakers right he now. He got arrested. Lonzo Ball in play. China. Right here. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't want to say that it was engineered. Per se, but I think that engineered like a shark in deep blue sea. Exactly. (laughs) Coincidentally, we seem to be talking a lot about the other balls right now, and not about how Lonzo was struggling. However, like my my take on Lonzo specifically is that he's going to be fine. So you think that Lavar Ball saw that Lonzo Ball struggling for the Lakers, and he engineered a geopolitical international (laughs) incident, like I said, where possibly Donald Trump will have to. Way in to save Leangelo Ball from an, like a big sentence for stealing an LV bag. I mean, I mean, it's Levar 2017. Said crazy so don't that talk surprising. about Lonzo missing some shots. You like know I what? said, a little outside the box. I like what you're selling here, Chris. I'm buying. <laughs> <laughs> Former NFL players turned analysts Tony Romo and Deion Sanders traded verbal jabs this week, and Cousin Sal and the degenerate trifecta break down an interesting fake gambling prop between the two former Cowboys if they actually traded jabs. What would happen if these two fought? Let's start with you, Brother Bry. What do you think? All right. So, yeah, these are two great athletes, two of the better uh, NFL athletes, right, overall, between mm-hmm. uh, Dan with uh, baseball and then Romo with uh, golf and basketball. So I'm going to, you know what, I'll give you a few a few pros and cons for each of them, and then I'll let you know what I'm going to take here. But obviously the pros for Dion, I mean, obviously he's a far superior athlete. I mean, the speed and stamina would be like such a big advantage. It would be ridiculous. The the con with Dion, though, is obviously he doesn't like to get hit. That's one. And then the other is, have you ever seen him throw his left hand? Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the the fight he was in with Andre Ryzen. If you look at that, oh, yeah. he throws this really like soft left-looping hand. So. Wow. It doesn't seem like he's been in too many fights in his life, so I, I don't, I don't know on that. Uh, if you look at Romo, though, obviously he's going to have a huge size advantage, right? He probably is about thirty pounds more than Dion, I would say at least. Mm-hmm. And then also, you know, obviously he's got you know some perseverance. You know, I think he'd be he'd train a long time for this fight. I think Dion would take it for granted that he would win easily. So I think that's a pro there. But then on the cons, you know, I'd say Tony uh, lacks elite athleticism. Yep. And then also, I, I doubt Tony's ever gotten into a real fight in his life. I mean, you mm. would probably know that, Sal, but I would say he's never gotten into a fight. So I'm going to lean towards Dion in this one. I'm, I'm, I'm basically going to say that Dion's going to jab him, move around the ring, jab him for about two rounds. Tony eventually will tire out, and then I'm going to say what happens. He, he trips over Dion's foot by accident, and he breaks a bone in his back, and then... That's it, and then oh. that stops it. So I'm going to say uh, a Dion minus 170. Oh, I hope it doesn't wind up like that. All right, all right. Paul, oh. kid, what do you say? Oh. D, I think I know what you're saying, but let's, well, let's hear uh, it. You, you, you kind of nailed this with the whole thing. I mean, Romo didn't say anything mean-spirited. You know, he was just doing his job, and he, he said something. D, Dion, like you said, it was kind of uh, mean-spirited what he kind of came back with Romo. But that being said, neither guy – really said anything that wasn't true. I mean, right. but 
I just thought the way Dion came back with it, that you know, that really wasn't necessary. Dion, Dion, you're a Hall of Famer. Relax. Yeah. Relax. You're in the Hall. You know, you don't have anything to prove. But listen, tail of the tape, Romo 6'2", 230. Dion 6'1", close to 200 pounds. And I think that's, that's in their, you know, their, their prime uh, playing days. Dion's one of the greatest athletes of all time, right along with Bo Jackson when we grew up, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, two tremendous athletes. But Tony Romo is probably the most underrated all-around athlete of all time. There you go. All right? NFL quarterback. Oh, boy. Very, very <laughs> nifty. Very nifty on his feet. He's nimble. Mm-hmm. He's nimble. Okay? He's a gym rat. <laughs> Karan Butler himself, and forget about what Harry's going to tell you, Karan Butler himself <laughs> said Tony Romo would have been a very good NBA basketball player. Right. Okay? That's, we, we know he's a very good golfer. And Tony Romo's best buddies growing up personally yes. told me, personally told me that he was an excellent soccer player and an excellent baseball player growing up as well. Right. Probably, to me, one of the most underrated athletes of all time. Dion showed by this war of words that he is not mentally tough. That's what he showed me. I Plus, like so how many times do we have to listen to Dion have hamstring problems, right? Yeah. Oh, my hamstrings, they hurt. Yeah. Tony Romo, this guy, and we all know this, he's played with broken fingers. He put himself back onto a field with a broken collarbone. He's played with a punctured lung and broken ribs. He played six weeks like that. He played with, he led a game-winning drive against the Redskins with a broken bone in his back. Yeah. This guy is as tough as they come. You put these two guys in the octagon, I don't care. Neither of them have fighting experience. Yep. Romo's going to pound him. <laughs> He's going to pound him and it. put him away quickly. I love it. And can you please make sure Romo listens to this whole thing? I'm going to try. I'm going to so, try to get him to listen thank to you. this. I'll say this also. Because, honestly, he would pound. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm no. sorry I am. Huh? <laughs> I think Romo, uh, here's the thing. Like, Yeah, yeah, what, what Dion said was true, but not for lack of trying. Tony Romo didn't try to uh, lose playoff games. Dion, you tried to not tackle guys who were right in front of you. And I would say. Good point. Uh, so that's it. So that's another week of Captain. Bo- oh, wait, Harry, you want to speak? <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> I was not going to let Harry speak. Go ahead, Harry. Let's hear, let's hear what well, you have to say. Go ahead. Well, you're not going to believe what I'm about to say uh, because I'm taking Romo at plus the 150. Yeah, well, it's, it's going to be some snide uh, bullcrap. Go ahead. Go. However, <laughs> however, you guys are just missing the obvious. Mm-hmm. And the obvious is that he'd call his pal, his ex-boss, Jerry Jones. He would get involved in this sort of thing. He would talk to Dion. And it's obvious it would be fixed because pretty boy Tony doesn't want to get hurt. Jerry would set up a payoff oh. system between him and okay. Dion, and then something like that, wow. and then Jerry takes care of it because there's a you know it would just be Dion would just be another long list, uh, another another one of the long list of puppets for Jerry like Romo, like Garrett, <laughs> like Troy Boy, like Switzer. Jimmy Johnson wasn't Switzer, buying it, Switzer. and that's why he went bye bye. So it's going to be a fix. It's a setup. And, of course, I'll take Romo at plus the 150 because Jerry will take care of it for him. All right. Well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. That's it for this week in Ringer Sports. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe and find all of our shows at theringer.com slash podcasts.